John chapter 12, I'll begin reading in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings. As one who judges him, the word which I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. This is God's holy word. Let's ask him for help. Lord God Almighty, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes so that we might see Jesus. Move our heart that we might believe in Jesus. Unplug our ears that we might hear Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite preaching quotes is a quote from the English Puritan by the name of Richard Baxter. In his book called The Reformed Pastor, he uh, exhorted pastors to preach as a dying man to dying men as if never to preach again. To preach as a dying man to dying men as if never to preach again. It's a great quote that reminds us of the urgency of of what takes place during the preached word. Namely, that I may be dead before the next time I get behind this pulpit, or you may be dead by the time I come again to this pulpit. We don't know the day or the hour. To preach as if this is the last message I will ever give. Well, the Lord Jesus, in a very similar way, was preaching His last message. It's the last recorded public message in John's Gospel before the curtain closes and Jesus spends the rest of the chapters devoted specifically to His disciples, the inner core of His followers, teaching and instructing Him before He goes to the cross and dies. And so it's... it's very interesting and important for us to ponder these words because Jesus knowingly preached this as His last public message to the audience of Israel. And as we go through this kind of summary, I assume, of of this mini-sermon that Jesus preached, uh, we're going to see themes that have recurred over and over throughout the Gospel of John. And and in a very real sense, we're going to see three promises that would urge us to believe in Jesus, to see Jesus, and to hear Jesus. And so let's look at the first of these promises. It's in verse 44, to believe Jesus from the heart. 
Verse 44 says, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Now keep in mind the context of John's gospel. John has just recorded that the people of Israel, those who are Jesus' own, were not receiving him. Like it says in John chapter 1 and verse 11, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. And so we see that here in the Gospel of John, John gives the explanation that God had hardened their hearts. We saw that uh, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, in, in verse 40 of the same chapter, he blinded their eyes, he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. So, so John quotes uh, from the book of Isaiah as an explanation of what's going on here and now when, I, when John is recording their hardness of heart towards Jesus. That this is like the days of old with the prophet Isaiah where Isaiah was bringing a message and God was hardening their heart. After a prolonged period of God appealing to them through the prophets, God was going to shut the lights out on them. In a very real sense, this is what's taking place here. In John chapter 12. And so it's within that context of of God hardening the heart, blinding the eye, plugging the ears, that Jesus makes this final appeal to believe. In in a sense, an encouragement to believe, to see, to hear. Because he says in verse 44, to believe in Him is to believe in the Father. Now, Try to place yourself in the sandals of this first century audience who would have been thinking, do I believe, might have been tempted to think, do I continue believing in the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Scriptures, or do I believe in Jesus? And Jesus is saying, no, you're not choosing between the two. Because to believe in Me, Jesus says, One does not believe in me. Now when Jesus says that in verse 44, He's obviously saying not merely in me. You're not choosing between me and the one who sent me. You're choosing both of us. That Jesus is inseparably connected to the Father because of the the reality that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in essence as to their being. Although Jesus in, in, in His distinct person has an additional nature of a human nature, but, be, but because He is God, a very God, He is one in essence with the Father and therefore the perfect revelation of the Father to humanity so that when a person believes in Jesus, they're believing in the One who sent Him. This is nothing new as you know in the Gospel of John. In John 7, 28 says, Then Jesus cried out, or I'm sorry, in chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death and into life. So that to hear Jesus' words and to believe in him who sent me is what ushers one into eternal life. So you have to believe and hear both the Father and the Son. 
Also in John 14 in verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And in any other context, to say such a thing would be absurd, right? If I said, believe in God and believe in me. Me, like Matt Mager, me. To say that, you would say, wait, wait, wait a second. You're putting yourself on the same level as God. That's blasphemous. It's blasphemous for me to do that because I'm not God. But for Jesus to do that, it's proper and right. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the one who sent him. In John chapter 8 and verse 19, the crowd was saying, Where is your father? Jesus answered them, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. John chapter 10 and verse 38, Though you do not believe in me, believe in the works, so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the Father. So over and over in these passages, we see this theme of Jesus connecting Himself to the Father. They are inseparably united because they are both of the same divine essence. So that to believe in Jesus is to believe in the One who sent Jesus. And notice this is a message that Jesus wants us to hear. Because notice how John records Jesus communicating this message. In verse 44 it says, And Jesus cried out and said this. He wasn't whispering it. He wasn't speaking this in hushed tones. His his voice ascends above all other voices and says, Believe in me, and you are believing not only in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus must be heard on this. Jesus will be heard that to believe in Him is to believe in the Father as well. Now the implications of this are tremendous. okay? Because this means if a person does not believe in Jesus, they are not believing in the one true God. And that's a tough pill to swallow in our very pluralistic culture. A culture that believes it's okay to believe anything except to believe something is wrong. Right? I mean, I heard this past week about people who frequent pet psychics. Now, that's not a pet who is a psychic like Doc McStuffins who practices medicine, a pet that practices being a psychic. But it's somebody who says that they can communicate with animals both dead and alive telepathically. This is something that's acceptable in our culture, but the minute you stand up and say that Jesus is the only way to God, you're laughed out of the room. But going to the pet psychic is acceptable. And so friends, we... In the midst of a culture that hates the exclusivity of the reality of Christ and His claims, of His union with the Father, so that to disbelieve in Jesus is to commit idolatry. We need to be willing to die to self. 
to die to the applause of others. This is we saw in this very context last week. Remember, it was those rulers in verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You're not going to win the approval of men by believing that Jesus is the only way to God. That believing in Jesus is believing in God. It's a very unpopular message. And we need to be willing to trumpet because this is the very message that the world needs to hear. This is the message that the world needs to hear. That they need to turn from their idols and turn and bow their knee to King Jesus. This is what Christians have believed for thousands of years. This is the message that is necessary for our salvation. And it is the message that the world needs to hear. There is no God outside the Trinitarian God of the Bible. But not only to believe Jesus from the heart, and in doing so you're believing in the one who sent him, but to see Jesus with spiritual eyes. And again, remember the context of of John just explaining this unbelief because Israel didn't have eyes to see. God had given them hardened, uh, blinded eyes and hardened hearts. And yet Jesus says here, in verse 45, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And again, it's a kind of a promise. If you see, see me... You're seeing the one who sent me. And remember, in this previous context, remember when John speaks of Isaiah having that vision in the temple and this hardness of heart section. In verse 41, it says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And spoke of him. Remember, we said last week that the, the, the him, his glory, and spoke of him. Uh, the the nearest antecedent is speaking of Jesus. In other words, when 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 Isaiah records that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one cried to the other, Holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. John records that Isaiah was seeing Jesus' glory. And so, even though Jesus hadn't been born, because the divine essence of Jesus was there in that vision that Isaiah had. And so, John is recording in a similar way. Anybody who sees Jesus now is seeing the one who sent him. And again, this isn't anything new in the Gospel of John, right? That's how the Gospel of John opens up, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, of the same essence as God. He was with God in the beginning, distinct from God, and yet was God. 
John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him or declared Him. We see it in John 14 in verse 9. Remember that conversation Jesus has with Philip? When Philip says, uh, if you would just show us the Father, Jesus, that would be enough for us. And then Jesus says to Philip, Have you been with me so long and yet not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus, again, as to His divine essence, is of the same essence as the Father, and therefore the perfect revelation of the Father in human flesh. Same thing in John 15.24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. So it works the other way as well. To see Jesus is to see the Father. But to hate Jesus is also to hate the Father. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And so Jesus in His coming became the perfect acid test of a person's relationship with God. Because if you received and embraced Jesus, then it was evidence that you received and embraced God. But if you reject Jesus, then you are rejecting the true and living God. And so this is, these are quite tremendous claims here, right? Jesus is, by saying this, to see Him is to see the One who sent Him is to claim equality of essence with the Father. But it's also instructive for us as believers that to see Jesus is to see the Father, to see the One who sent Him. So that while belief is something that begins at a certain point in time in a person's life, so seeing begins at a certain point in somebody's life, but it's it's not a once-for-all kind of thing. You don't believe and then move on from there. You keep believing. You keep believing in Jesus. You keep trusting in Him. You keep trusting in His saving work upon the cross. You keep seeing Him. And the message of the Scripture is that the more a believer sees Jesus, the more he grows to become like Jesus, because he's seeing a revelation of God and growing deeper in that love for God and becoming more like God. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you want to grow 
from glory to glory to become more like Jesus, then you need to gaze upon Jesus. You need to look at Jesus to see Him in all of His profound glory. And as you see Him, the more you will love Him and the more you will become like Him. Have you ever seen a couple that's been married for many years growing deeper and deeper in their love and commitment to one another and Sometimes they begin to look like one another. <laughs> Sometimes even people begin to look like their pets. We'll have to consult the pet psychic about that. <laughs> but you do tend to become like that which you love. You tend to become like that which you adore and worship. It's even true of the pagans. That's what you look at the prophets. And, and uh, I think it's Psalm 115. It says they, they become like what they worship. You, you look at, dare I say, even Islam today. A faithful Muslim tends to become very like Allah. Very violent and capricious. And so this is really the heart of the Christian life and our response to Jesus as we see more of Him. And remember, towards the end of the Gospel of John, the way in which Jesus challenges Peter after He had denied Him three times was by what? Asking that question of Peter. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But if we're honest with ourselves as believers, we often don't love Jesus as we ought to. We don't see Him as we ought to. There's so many other things biding for our attention, seeking to distract us from Him. And we need to gaze upon Jesus to see Him as He's unfolded from the Gospel of John, to see Him all in His, his righteous fury of, of, of John chapter 2 when He's driving people out of the temple, driving the money changers out of the temple. We need to see Him in His, in his boldness, yet concern for that religious leader Nicodemus when He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. We need to see Him in His tenderness and compassion in His being a friend of sinners in, in John chapter 4 when He talks to that woman at the well and plows through all the cultural barriers to tell her to drink of the waters of salvation. We need to see Him in His candidness with the paralytic of 37 years after He had healed him and then saw him later on in the temple and said, stop sinning lest something worse happens to you. We need to see Him in all of His glory in John chapter 9 after He had healed that blind man who became a voice and witness for Jesus and gets kicked out of the synagogue and Jesus sought Him out and revealed more of Himself to this man. The care, the concern, the compassion that Jesus had. His love for righteousness. We need to see Him in His glory as the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. As the Good Shepherd who calls His sheep out by name and they follow Him. 
We need to see Him in His glory and His majesty as both the one who weeps at the graveside of Lazarus, but yet in His tremendous power summons Him from the grave. We need to see Jesus more clearly. And to see Him more is to love Him more and to become more like Him. But also to not see Him is to not see God, the One who sent Him. To fail to see Jesus in all of His glory is to be lost, is to be in the darkness. To have no love for Jesus is to have no love for the Father. This is what Jesus goes on to say in verse 46. He says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in the darkness. This is, an, again, this imagery of Jesus declaring Himself to be the light is nothing new in the Gospel of John, right? That's how John even opens up in the prologue. In John chapter 1 and verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through Him. But He was not the light. He came to testify about the light. There was the true light which comes into the world. We see in John chapter 3, around verse 18, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but what? Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who hates the light will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We see it in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am, what? The light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. So, over and over throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is the light. He is, he is the perfect revelation of the Father. He is the incarnation, the enfleshment of truth and righteousness, which means darkness is a, is a symbol of lies and wickedness. So the person who believes in the light, as he says earlier on in this chapter, they become a son of the light, a follower of the light, and they're no longer in the darkness. They're no longer immersed and encased in the lies of this world. They're no longer immersed and encased in the rebellion of this world. They've been called out of the darkness and into the light. Because they've seen Jesus. They've seen the light. It's like that hymn of Isaac Watts. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, where the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Friend, are you still in the darkness? Are you still going according to the course of this world? Are you still immersed in all the beliefs and ideologies of this world? 
Are you still trying to work your way to God? Hoping that you can earn His favor? Trying to work for God like a criminal doing community service? Hoping that His payment can be made? Can be released from His debt? Or have you come to the light to see that this great light has come into the world and has died upon that Roman cross and rose from the dead so that as Watts wrote, the burden of your heart can be rolled away to be forgiven of your sin. Do you know that? If you do, you're in the light. You're not in the darkness anymore. But if you haven't, you're still in the darkness. And I plead with you, come to the light. Come to Jesus. Look at Him. See Him suspended between heaven and earth, crying out on that Roman cross. It is finished. He paid for sin in full. Go to Jesus. Go to the light. You don't have to come up here. You can do it from your seat. He won't shoo you away. He'll welcome you to Himself. He is the good shepherd who cares for His sheep. And again, if you've come to the light, you know Jesus, you see Jesus in all of His glory, then you can thank God that He's opened your eyes, that you can see Him. And continue to see Him. Continue to gaze upon Him. For as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, you will be transformed from one level of glory to another. Well, not only to believe Jesus from the heart, because to believe in Jesus, to believe the One who sent Him. To see Jesus with spiritual eyes, because to see Jesus is to see the One who sent Him. But now thirdly, to hear Jesus with spiritual ears. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 47 following. If anyone hears My sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So now Jesus has moved from belief to seeing, now to hearing. Which again, keep in mind that backdrop of of John's citation of Isaiah chapter 6. Here he says, to hear his sayings. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them. So now he starts with the negative. He says, I do not judge him. And this now gives us an insight into the mission of Jesus. Did you notice that phrase over and over repeated in the first two verses we looked at in verse 44 and verse 5? How is the Father described? He's described as Him who sent me, as the One who sent me. And now here in verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus was sent on a mission to save. And so here he's explaining, if you reject my words, I'm not going to judge you. Now, probably the vast majority of the world who reads that would like to stop there. Ah, see, God doesn't judge. Jesus doesn't judge me. Now Jesus is going to to go on to say, 
Indeed, there is a judgment. There is a day of judgment. But what he's explaining here is that in his first advent, his first coming, his mission was not a mission of judgment, but a mission of salvation, a mission of deliverance, a mission to rescue people from their sin. Verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. He who rejects me and does not receive my saying. Now this is very important. Notice how Jesus connects his sayings or his teachings, his words with him. Now, that's very important because sometimes people try to draw a divorce between those two things, you know. Well, I just like the teachings of Jesus. I like the Sermon on the Mount, you know. And you just want to say, have you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know? And usually what people mean by that, it talks about, you know, loving your enemies and, and, and the mentality is, well, yeah, people should love me if I'm their enemy, you know. There's no feeling the weight of, no, you're supposed to love your enemies, there's no feeling the weight of, of, of the hammer of, of the law coming down upon a person to see their need for Jesus. And so my point is that you can't connect the teachings of Jesus with the person of Jesus, nor with the mission of Jesus. It's all intertwined. The teachings of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus is all intertwined. You can't pick and choose which one you want. You have to take all of it because all of it is part of the sending mission of the Father. And that in doing so to reject Jesus' words is to reject the words of the Father, is to reject the mission of Jesus, namely His dying upon the cross on behalf of sinners. His mission of saving the world. And so Jesus says here, He who rejects me does not reject my sayings, has one who judges me, the word which I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. What Jesus is highlighting here is the utter solemnity of refusing his overtures of grace. Now, it doesn't mean that people are only judged on the basis of how they respond to Jesus' message or the gospel. People are judged for their sins. But... It is highlighting the greatest sin, the most weighty of sins, is when this good news of the gospel that Jesus came to forgive you of your sins by dying upon the cross, He came to give you newness of life, both to work for you and to work in you. And a person rejects that message, the day of judgment will be severe. That that word that was preached, that word that they heard, that they refused, will rise up against them on the day of judgment to testify the plea deal was on the table, but you refused the offer. Now there's hell to pay. To reject this message of grace. I mean, think about it. Think... Think for a moment. I mean, imagine if 
you know, if you had an inspection done upon your house and, and, and somebody told you, you know, actually I'm looking at the house, I've done some investigation, there is a giant sinkhole underneath this house. And this inspector says, you know what, I, I will rebuild a brand new house for you. You, you, need, you, you can't spend another night in this house. And imagine somebody refusing that offer to build a brand new house in a brand new location that's on safe and secure ground and refusing that only to have their house swallowed up by the earth with them in it. You say, well, that's on them. They had the offer. It was a gracious offer, but they refused it. In a similar way, the person who refuses God's overtures of grace and His offer of salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. Again, this is Jesus' last sermon. This is why He raises His voice to refuse this word is to your own peril and damnation. Hear me, Jesus is saying, by raising His voice. Listen to me. To reject me, is, is to reject my words is to reject the Father's words. And this is a message of forgiveness and grace. Jesus' words are to be identified with the Father's words because of their union. Sometimes this happens, I've heard it happens in some families' homes where a child maybe asks permission from a parent and that parent says no. And then the child gets the slick idea, well, I'll just go ask the other parent And, uh, you know, if those parents are wise, then they, they, they will say something like, no, if their answer was no, then my answer is no. And if you try to do that again, we will apply the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge. The, the idea of this, this connection between Jesus' words and the Father's words, it, it's something that, that, that really goes deep into the essence of God as, as the Trinity. Notice verse 49 here. Jesus says, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So here Jesus gives some insight that when He speaks, He's not speaking on His own initiative. But again, notice how the Father is described. But the Father Himself, who sent me, has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So notice here the words that Jesus says are connected with the mission, the sending of Jesus, so that whatever Jesus says, it's, it's not of Himself. It's, it's the Father's words. 
And again, notice this commandment here because he talks about this commandment again in verse 50. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Now, when Jesus says in verse 50, his commandment is eternal life, don't think that he's speaking of his commandment for us. If you obey me, then you'll have eternal life. But his commandment is the commandment he referred to in verse 49. Namely, the commandment that goes from Father to the Son. And so what we have here is Jesus giving us a window again into this intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son in the plan of salvation. That there is an eternal agreement between the Father and the Son and the sending of the Son to save those who had been given by the Father to the Son, and if we can include the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit in applying this message to those people. It's, theologians call it the pactum salutum. The salvation pact. Or sometimes it's called the covenant of redemption. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, The commandment given by the Father to the Son as to what He should teach and do was not a commandment which the Son had no part but to obey. It was simply the charge or commission arranged in the covenant of redemption by all three persons of the Trinity which the Son was was willing to execute as the Father was willing to give. And again, this is nothing new within the Gospel of John. Remember in John chapter 4 when, when the disciples went to go get lunch and Jesus is talking with the woman at the well and they come back, you know, they're still munching on their five guys cheeseburger and, and Jesus says, uh, uh, they offer Jesus some food and he, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they're looking around and said, you know, did somebody give him some food? And remember how Jesus explains his food? He says... He says in verse 34 of John 4, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. My food, my delight, what satisfies my soul is to obey the mission of the Father. To accomplish what He has given me tasks to do. This is the same thing we see in John 6, 37-40. All that the Father gives me will come to me And everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me. All that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And so that's why Jesus says... His commandment is eternal life. His commandment that He gave me, namely, His commandment results in eternal life to those who have been given by the Father. To those who believe. To those who see. To those who hear. This is the promise. So friend, if you see, if you believe, if you hear... You are secure within the perfect work and agreement of the Trinity. That you are safe 
Because there was an eternal covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to work for your salvation. And none of them has dropped the ball on their side of the agreement. The Father gave a people to the Son. The Son lays His life down and rises from the dead on behalf of that people. The Holy Spirit brings them to life to unite them to Jesus. His commandment is eternal life. So again, then, when Jesus came in space and time and is speaking words, He's speaking the words of Him who sent Him. As His words are recorded in the Scripture, He's speaking the words of Him who sent Him. As we read the pages of Scripture, Jesus speaks today. If you hear His voice. And again, so obviously Jesus is not, as He's not speaking of physical eyes, nor is He speaking of physical ears. You can have Jesus' words hit your auditory canal. Those three bones that I forget the name of in your ear that send signals to your brain. But you still may not hear. To hear is to receive to hear is to welcome His words with a heart of belief and submission. Friend, do you hear His voice? To hear Him is, as He says of His sheep, He calls them out by name. And they hear His voice and they follow Him. And hearing His voice is to hear the voice of the One who sent Him. So just like believing and just like seeing, it's not a one-time thing. You have to continue to hear the voice of the Father, the voice of Jesus as they communicate us through the Scriptures. And you have to continue to listen, to have that posture like the prophet of old, Speak, Lord, for Your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, For your servant is listening. Listen to Jesus in His words. So Jesus' final sermon. He preached. Giving the promise that anybody who believes in Him believes the One who sent Him. Giving the promise anybody who sees Him sees the One who sent Him. Giving the promise that those who hear Him hear the One who sent Him. But also giving the warning that to reject Him and His sayings is to reject the Father. Friend, as Baxter said, to preach as a dying man to dying men as if never to preach again. Jesus would eventually move out from the public scene after this message. The curtain would close. His remaining hours He would spend with His disciples. He says earlier on in this chapter, believe in the light while while the light is with you. Friend, Believe in Jesus. This might be the last sermon you ever hear. This might be the last sermon I ever preach.
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, You are the God who speaks. You are the God who reveals. You are the God who promises. And we have an obligation to see You and what You have revealed. To believe You and what You have promised. To hear You and what You have said. So Lord, keep our ears open. Keep our eyes seeing. Keep our hearts believing. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to close by singing 10,000 Reasons.